This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. It's always a privilege to be able to gather as we open up God's Word together, isn't it? Let's just commit this time to God that He will prepare us for this last chapter of 2 Samuel. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you that we can gather here safely. Pray, God, that you prepare our minds to engage your word. We pray that you will soften our hearts, that we can respond. And you will strengthen our will by your spirit. That we can live a life that glorifies you. Amen. Now, there is a cost to everything, isn't it? There's a cost when you go for holidays. There's a cost for employment. There's a cost for goods and services. Sometimes when you open your letterbox, there's a cost to the advertisements there. If, if it's cheap and there's discount, you'll see the price tag really big. If it's really expensive, but they want you to buy it, you'll show you a very beautiful picture with no price tag and just the address. Uh, but there's a cost to everything. But what about sin? What is the cost of sin? As we come to the end of 2 Samuel today, we will be confronted with an uncomfortable and kind of a weird account that leads us to ask this question, what is the cost of sin? Now back in 2 Samuel 21, in the epilogue, we read about Lord's anger on King Saul and because of the Lord's anger, seven men died. But now as we come to chapter 24, the anger of the Lord was on Israel and David and 70,000 dies. Why does the author end 2 Samuel with this account? What is the lesson that he's trying to get us to think as we close this book? I invite you to come with me beginning at verse 1 as we take this one last journey with David in the book of 2 Samuel. So look at verse 1 with me. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel and he incited David against them saying, Go and take a census of Israel and Judah. Now as you look at this verse, while we are reading that God is angry with Israel, it's worth noting that there's actually no particular sin mentioned uh, about Israel. Perhaps it is intentional. For as we have read about Israel since the beginning of this Samuel series of first Samuel to second Samuel, since the very beginning in first Samuel eight, the people of Israel wants to be like the rest of the nations. They say, God, thanks, but no thanks, we want a physical king. And that begins the story of the kings. So now here as we end 2 Samuel 24, having no specific sin mentioned is perhaps a good summary of how Israel has always been. The mentioning perhaps of even a specific sin will just narrow down the severity of their hearts. So here the author is sufficient for him to just end off that, to begins that the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And so the Lord will bring judgment to Israel. And to do that, he incited David against Israel, saying, Go and take a census of Israel and Judah. Now this verse, when we read it, a lot of people have some concerns, like, ah, how does God get involved with this? Is it God, um, getting David to sin and he's just kind of a passive figure? It doesn't get better if you look at the other account of this same event in Chronicles, First Chronicles 21. Let me just um, read to you what it says. I think it's on the screen as well. 
Chronicles says this, Satan rose up against Israel and cited David to take a census. So there you have it, right? Second Samuel 24, God incited David. When you read Chronicles, Satan incited David to do the census. So did, did God incite David or did Satan incite David or David is just a kind of passive character in this whole event? To kind of understand this and wrestle with this a little bit, uh, there's, there are a few things that we kind of have to uh, recognize as we read the Bible. The first thing that we need to recognize is just as Samuel, the author, writes it, and for Chronicles, they write the same account with a specific purpose. And so they may view it in a different angle of the same event. In Second Samuel 24, God did incite David, but probably not in a kind of audible voice, but it is God's will that this will happen. As you look at First Chronicles 21, Satan incited David to do this, perhaps through a temptation. And at the end of the day, as you read on today's chapter, you see that David realized that he himself made this choice and it was his own sinful desires that he has ins- he's done this census. So that's the first thing we kind of need to recognize. The second thing we need to recognize is that it's actually not uncommon in the Bible to actually read God, evil, and also the affected party all in this same whole plot together. If you are kind of familiar with some of the Old Testament, the story of Job, in Job chapter 1 and 2, Job, um, God looks at Job and says, this is a man who loves me. And he says that to Satan. Look, this is a man who loves me. And Satan says, let me inflict on him and I'll show you that he doesn't. And God says, go ahead, just don't take his life. And Satan inflicts harm on Job. And Job, because he was so badly hurt, he has to respond what is in his heart, whether he really loves God or not. So it was God's will for, for Job to respond what is in his heart. It was Satan's hope that what comes out is something against God. And Job, in his kind of response to this whole thing, he reveals that, I really love my God. There's another account in New Testament, in 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul, after he had seen a great revelation from God, there was a thorn in his flesh. In, in fact, Paul says this himself. He says that the messenger of Satan was sent to torment me. And so Paul prayed three times, God, please remove this thorn in my flesh. And God says, no. And Paul realized that actually it is God's will for the thorn to remain in him. Because Paul has received such a great revelation, God says that you shall have this thorn lest you be conceited. And furthermore, my grace is sufficient for you. So you realize that God has allowed it, Satan has tried it, and the person responds to it. But the most prominent event of this is God's will in Acts 2, where God's will, evil, plan, and the sufferer's heart are all reviewed. And let me read to you the death of Jesus. Acts 2.23 says this, The man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. So it is God's will that Jesus die. It is the wicked people's will or hope that Jesus dies. God's will is that he was saved. The evil people's will is that they may continue to sin. And Jesus response in his heart that I will die because I love God and because you are my sheep. So you see, as we come to this whole event that the mystery of God's sovereignty happens in a very mysterious way. 
that the wicked people do what they want, but God's sovereign hand is always in control. Imagine you're a zookeeper, right? That you, you open the cage and you let a seal, hungry seal, jumps right into the water. The seal has no need for coercion to do exactly what he wants to do. And the fish needs no explanation to know what he needs to run, where he needs to swim, right? So you see that even though the, the, the zookeeper opens up the, the, the cage, he doesn't need to say what you need to do. The very fact that the seal is a seal will do exactly what it is. So at the same time, even as God's will is such and he allows evil to do what he wants to do, evil doesn't need a cohesion from God to actually inflict or incite David to do the census because that will be what Satan wants to do. And so we have it here in Second Samuel 24 that the writer writes, God incites David because he was angry with Israel. And if you read the accounts of Chronicles, it is that God, Satan incites David because that was his way for David to fall. But there's just one more question about this issue. What's wrong with doing census anyway? In fact, the whole book, you know, there are census all over the place. In fact, we have a book called Census, right? Oh, well, not really census, it's called Numbers. Uh, but, but you have census right in the beginning and you have census right at the end. What, what is wrong with doing census? Why is doing census sinning for David? Look at, look with me to verse 2 and 4. Verse 2 to 4. Look at it with me. So the king said to Joab and the army commanders with him, Go throughout the tribe of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and enroll the fighting men so that I may know how many there are. But Joab replied the king, May the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over and may the eyes of my lord the king see it. But why? Why does my lord the king want to do such a thing? The king's word, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders so they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel. You know, something's amazed when we start to read that even Joab and the army commanders do not want to do census, right? Even the contrast here, the, the war-thirsty veteran Joab, who will not blink an eye to kill, says, I don't want to do this. But David insisted. In fact, if you, if, as we've read on, you have heard Joab's cry when he goes for battle. Whether he means it or not, he always, uh, calls upon the name of the Lord that we'll fight for God and God's king. It's never let's go and get them and kind of look great. It was never that way. But today, David is different. And Joab is sensing the trouble that's brewing up. Now having just gone through the mighty man of David in chapter 23, now comes the time that perhaps David is ahead of himself. I've counted my mighty men. Perhaps I should count my mighty soldiers as well. What he really needs now to make him a really great king is to have the numbers counted. But that's not what Joab says. In fact, Joab, who is often at odd to David, he says, Lord will multiply you. May he multiply you a hundred times of your greatness. But why count the soldiers? But David, he kind of not just rejected Joab's answer, he rejected the rest of his army commanders. And so he go forth to do what he wants. As we read on verse 5 to 9, we start to see this is a kind of a nationwide census. It's really extensive. And an extensive census like that is costly 
It's never done without a reason. You know, in New Testament, we read Caesar's Augustus, when he did census, is to kind of collect taxes. He counted foreigners. But David doesn't want to count foreigners. He wants to count his own men. And we come to Numbers, when, when Joshua did the census at the end, he counts it because God says, count the men, know the numbers, know the groups, know the tribes, so that I can give them my inheritance of the promised land. But David is not going to give Christmas, Christmas present at this point when he's doing census. It's neither for war, it's neither for taxes, it's neither for giving of inheritance. This census takes 10 months to get through. Why do it unless it's for David's pride? The legacy of the mighty man and now the legacy of the mighty kingdom. Verse 4, The king's words overruled Joab and the army commanders so that they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel. C.S. Lewis once says this, Pride is a spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. Pride is a spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. We're seeing this in David's insistence on the senses. Instead of love and contentment, the kingdom has become numbers to him. And he's not contented to trust God to multiply him many times over. He does not want to listen to the wisdom or even the common sense of his army commanders. As we read this, we're waiting for disasters to happen, isn't it? In this last chapter, the downfall of Absalom because of pride should have been a good warning. But here comes David's. So as we kind of look through verse 5 to 8, all the names that we have there, it's a huge area, extensive work that's done. In fact, if you just put your time and flip to First Chronicles 21, there's additional information there that this command was so repulsive to Joab that as he goes on to count, there are two groups that he refused to count, the Levites and the Benjamites. The Levites are no fighting men. They are the people who are to do the spiritual rituals to bring people to God. Benjamin, I have no idea why he didn't count. Perhaps he says, these are Saul's men you want to include into yours. I don't know. But, but Joab found it so repulsive, he missed out these two groups, even as he counted the fighting men of David. Now we have to ask earlier, what is the most, if we have to ask this just a bit earlier, what's the most disastrous sin of David? We'll think, ah, oh, it's this kind of last of Bathsheba, his murder. But look at the census. The death and the implication is far more painful and confronting and quicker than what the others have. But after, as you see that this is so disastrous, that after he has done the census and kind of David heard the numbers, he started to kind of flip and recognize that I think I'm in big trouble. I think I've sinned against God and he will incur the wrath of God. He needs to come back to God for forgiveness. Look at verse 10. David, he became conscience-stricken after he had counted the fighting men. He said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I've done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I've done a very, very foolish thing. Now, David was stricken in his heart immediately when he has, you know, satisfy his sinful cravings. 
and the horror of sin becomes real and glaring right in his face. He knew the grave spiritual sin. You know what? God saw it. Ten months ago, Joab and the army commanders have seen it. David was the one that refused to see it until he has heard the numbers and he starts to recognize that he's in big, big trouble. Now, someone puts it this way. The sin of pride is not about being strong. It's not about being fast, rich, beautiful, or powerful. The sin of pride is wanting to be just stronger, faster, richer, more beautiful, more powerful, just more superior than someone else. And here, in so doing, David has turned from humble reliance on God to multiply for him, to see what he has in all his kingdom, just like the prideful kings of the nations around them. As we pause here for a moment, I just want to ask, what do we think the author wants us to take away from 2 Samuel 24? When we read about David's adultery and murder back in chapter 11, Many of us, or most of us, say, well, that's terrible. I will not do that, at least not physically. But what about the sin of pride, the spiritual cancer that eats into, into our love, contentment, even common sense, and reliance on God? Are we familiar with the sin of pride? I don't know about you. I find it a very familiar sight. Do we speak and think and see we are better than others? Or our opinions are slightly more valid than someone else so that we have the last say in most conversation. Or we treat those who are serving us as if we are more important than them because we are paying them for a service. Or we speak of other people's mistakes or sin as if we are just kind of a bit better than them. Do we think that hell is there but more deserving people goes to it, but heaven is there and we are just good enough to get in there? There's this survey that's done. I thought it was really funny. It says this, uh, the hater goes, everyone thinks they're above average, and it begins this, right? On a scale of 1 to 10, you probably think that you're 7, and you wouldn't be alone. And it goes out, in, in this survey, it says, no, people think that they are better than most people in many areas, whether it's charitable behavior or work performance. In fact, they have a name for this thing, right? It's called the phenomenon of illusionary superiority. And psychology says they'll be surprised when they do any test that this thing doesn't come out. Because it's so common. In fact, they did a survey in, in, in the 70s, right? They say they surveyed the professors, like smart people. 94% will think that they are above average. Kind of like only six people are kind of below average. So you, you kind of see that. And drivers, as they kind of uh, interview drivers, drivers constantly rate themselves just better than the rest. Even if they, are, they do a test and say that they are actually dangerous drivers. But they always think that they are just better the others. No pride make us forget our place in creation. We start to forget God and we start to see ourselves just greater than what we are. This ancient sin existed right in the beginning of A and E, isn't it? Adam and Eve, they were kind of, they loved and they were contented until Satan comes and says, you know what, you can be slightly better than what God has made you. And they say, yep, I think you're right. Maybe we should be God. And how can we forget the Tower of Babel where everyone says, no, we are so great, let's build a tower that we can reach God. And the story goes on and on and on. Sin hardens sinners' hearts against God and blinds us of the horror of the sin when everyone else sees it. 
But as we read on here, we do see a different David. He begins to see the horror of his spiritual sins. He starts to recognize his guilt and how very foolish he is. And so he realized actually Joab was right. That God can multiply. But why, oh why, do I do the census? So David recognizes his sin. He turns back to God. And three times in the rest of this chapter, he acknowledges his sin against God. Verse 10, he says, I sin greatly in what I've done. Verse 14, I am in deep distress. 17, he says, I've sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. I've done a very foolish thing. Well, if there's only one other thing that David knows besides of his sin, he knows this amazing thing. He knows that God is a merciful God. And so he, after he recognized his sin and repents, he pleaded with God in verse 10, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I've done a very foolish thing. He knew of sin, but he knew God's mercy. But the truth is this. Mercy and forgiveness never comes free. The removal of sin and its consequence is never without a price. So with that, as David recognized his sin, Gad, the seer, came and he approached David the next morning. And unlike uh, Nathan in chapter 11, Nathan says, try to tell a parable. I says, David, do you know this thing? Actually, you're the one. Gad came in and says, David, I've got three options for you. Option one, three years of famine. Option two, Three months fleeing from enemies. Option three, you have plague in your land. <laughs> he didn't even mention what's the sin, right? He came here and says, these are your three options. And David, in deep distress, he couldn't choose. And he said in verse 14, can't choose. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But do not let me fall into human hands. David, in his repentance, recognized that God is merciful. And the only way to survive the wrath of God is to repent and ask God to judge. And in, in, in the process, reveals His mercy. It's so important to ask friends or brothers and sisters, how do we respond to sin when we sin? How do we respond when we find ourselves in a kind of prideful situation, when we forget that all things come from God, when our thoughts, our actions, our words show contempt to God if we step back and look at it. How do we respond to sin? Will we, like David, acknowledge our sin before God, confessing our foolishness and pleading for God to remove our guilt? Now, being New Testament people, the good news is if we do, Jesus, our great King, will forgive us and will take away the consequence of our sin. But not Israel. Israel didn't have such a king. In fact, their king also needs forgiveness. In fact, David himself needs help. So so look at verse 15. As, as David asked God, God, you choose. And God made this choice, verse 15. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the time designated. And 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. It's a, it's a terrible plague. I tried to look at the internet to see those horrible plagues. And, and this one is, is dreadful in any history. The amount and the speed is horrendous. 
In fact, by the time the angel's hand reaches Jerusalem to destroy the Lord, relented. He said, enough! Enough! Withdraw your hand. You know what? Whether it's one day or three days, at the rate of 70,000 deaths, and no humanity can stop it, there'll be no one left in Israel if this were to just carry on a little bit longer. Such was the price of sin. The Lord relented not because he was too harsh, but because of the mercy that David knew about God. He puts his judgment on hold. He says, stop. The angels stop at the threshing floor of Arauna of the Jebusite, uh, the Jebusite. And then David confessed his sin again. This time he acknowledged his failure as a shepherd. Look at verse 17 with me. Verse 17, when David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. When I read this, I, I remember back in uh, 2001, I was doing an internship. You know, I, was, I was studying finance. I was doing an internship in a petroleum additive company in the HR department. And... Um, I get to know the HR, the, 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 the head, right? And he being a wise older man wants to give some advice to young men like me, right? So he knew I was from the finance. So he, he came and said, uh, from background, he says, Andrew, do, do you know who are the worst people to be in HR? I said, I have no idea. You tell me. I say, finance people. I'm like, right. Um, why? He says, I mean, not all, he says, but when you're a finance person, the people, the numbers, are just just figures in your spreadsheet. And people will suffer when the crunch comes. I, I, I'm not sure if you agree with me or not, but, but it struck me at the time. That was uh, 17 years or more back, or 16, 17 years back, that when people become numbers, people suffer. That was what happened in verse 1, when Israel was a number to David. But things have changed in verse 24. Now he sees them as sheep. And David cried out to God, God, I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. Let your hand fall on me and my family. Pride has looked to self, but humility looks to God and all that God has given. Pride makes us full of ourselves, but humility makes us full of God and what God has for us. You know, in our English language, sin and pride. Look at this, right? Sin and pride. You can't really pronounce them if you take the I in the center away. How do you pronounce sin and pride? If you take the I in the center. But you put it in, you can say it as loud as you want, isn't it? So there we have it. As David regained his consciousness as the king and shepherd of God's people, he was willing to bear the judgment of his people rather than the innocent sheep. But we already know in verse 1 that that there are no innocent sheep, isn't it? David didn't know that. He thought it was all his sin. But God knew that. There was no innocent sheep. So in this last chapter, we see the price against God, the price of sin against God. We see the wrath of a God who cannot close his eyes on sin. We see the need to turn from pride and humbly come to Christ. We see in the midst of David's sin, we catch a glimpse 
that we need a shepherd king who is willing to bear the brunt and the wrath for the sheep. You know, as I look at this chapter, 2 Samuel 24, it's a really sobering kind of summary of Israel and actually of us as well, isn't it? The reality is that, like Israel, we are no innocent sheep. We are guilty more than we can ever imagine. The wrath of God must come. Only God's mercy can save us from what we deserve. Only a shepherd king who is willing to die for the sheep and meet God's requirement of justice that the sheep can survive. You know, God's mercy doesn't mean that he will ignore evil, but it means that he will have to handle the justice for his mercy to come in. Now we, we know this in, in kind of our daily life. If a wife wants to forgive a husband that has committed adultery, she bears the pain. When a man who is a victim in a car crash, for him to forgive the driver, he bears the ground of a wheelchair-bound life for the rest of his life. For God to forgive the sin of the offenders, he must absorb the impossibility that we can't afford. So we read in the passage that the angel of the Lord stood at the threshing floor of Arawana, the Jebusite, and Gad went to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor. The wrath of God at this point was, We helped at the threshing floor until an offering is paid for the forgiveness of sin and the relationship between God and man can once again be together. This is what we often call the atonement of sin, that the payment must be made and the the relationship must be reconciled. And so Gad gave this command to David. In fact, God has chosen the site to be made, the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. As we read, we start to catch, it start to catch our attention that actually, you know what, the 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 payment. The sacrifice of the animals, they're kind of totally unequal to the sin and the judgment that needs to carry on. How do you pay with some oxen and stop the destruction of Israel? But this is God's way. God said this in Leviticus. Let me read to you in Leviticus 11, 17 verse 11. God said this, For the life of a creature is in the blood. I've given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It's the blood that makes atonement for one's life. This is kind of God's way in the beginning. God's way through sacrifice of an animal is blood and altar to make atonement for human life. No, David, at least he kind of understood this and so he obeyed God's command to get. He went up threshing floor, he bought the site, he built an altar, he sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. No, burnt offerings are basically um, offerings according to God's law in Leviticus, to kind of make atonement for human sin, to kind of remove sin. Fellowship offering is made, according to Leviticus, uh, as a sign of peace with God once again. So David made this too uh, in obedience. And the Lord answered David's prayer in behalf of the land and the plague on Israel stopped. I think it's significant to know that this is actually how Second Samuel ended. And this whole chunk about trashing floor and this sacrifice, and this is how it ends. A deliberate description of the whole event 
In fact, with David's last word is verse 24. The king replied, No, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. David knows that sin has serious consequences and it must be paid and it's not free. But here, I just want to bring out a point that the first readers might have would have caught it easily. But we, if you're unfamiliar with Bible overview, but we'll soon be once everyone sign up for a Bible study uh, about this place. Let me tell you what's the interesting place, interesting thing about this trashing floor. In fact, let me read to you something that happened before David's time and after David's time. This trashing floor is actually called Mount Moriah. It's a very important biblical place in Israel history. Let me read just to you Genesis 22. This is what happened. God said this in Genesis 22. God said to Abraham, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. Go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him as a burnt offering on a mountain, I will show you. And then right after David's time, we read in Chronicles 3, verse 1, it says this, Then Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David. It was the threshing floor of Arona, the Jebusite, the place provided by David. We know back in Genesis that the hand of Abraham was held back. Isaac didn't have to be a burnt offering. We knew in David's time, the hand of the angel was stopped by a burnt offering of some animals. We know from then on, all Israelites who have sinned and truly repent as they come back to God, they go to this exact place, the temple of God, to make their burnt offerings so that God's wrath is not on them. But a day will come, and the day has come, when the hand of God was not held back in a place that's just off Mount Moriah called Golgotha. That is the place where God who has accumulated all his wrath. Do you think animals can pay for our sin? All the wrath and he targeted at that one son, that only son of his, that one shepherd king who will bear the price of his guilty sheep. And all the wrath falls on him. This is what Romans says. Let me read this to us. Romans 3.25 God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because... In his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. That's why the angel's hand stopped. Not because of the oxen that David has given, but because at that sacrifice, the way that God has planned, his hand was withheld because he knows that the day will come when the price will be paid in full by the shepherd king, by the only son, God's own son. Dear friends, sin is costly, very costly. David knew it. 
God knew it when he withheld the hand of the angel. Jesus knew it when he says to people, Son, your sins are forgiven. It is costly because he pays the price. But we did not end Second Samuel with the triumph of David, nor just an act of lust or murder. We end Second Samuel with the reminder of our never-ending sin and God's imminent judgment. We end Second Samuel with a desperate need for us to repent of our sin and to trust that God will make the atonement no one can afford. At the start of the epilogue in chapter 21, we are reminded the sin of the first Israel king, Saul. At this chapter, we are reminded of Israel's greatest king, David. None of them can save us. The only king that can save us is the second Samuel 7 king, the promised king through the line of David, Jesus, the shepherd king, who will die for our sins As I I kind of close, the question comes back to us. Do we see our sin? Do we come to Jesus in humble repentance as David had done? If you do, let me read for us Romans 6.23, which we all read together just now. Romans 6.23 For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.